Hi, my name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. On this show, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow contemporary, socially engaged Black artists. Today, I couldn't be more honored to bring you this episode. We're launching season two of the Lineage podcast with master storyteller and poet, Sonia Sanchez. In addition to being a founder of the National Black Arts Movement and the first presidential fellow at Temple University, where she held the Laura Carnell Chair in English, Sonia is an award-winning writer of 16 books, including Morning Haiku, Wounded in the House of a Friend, and Shake Loose My Skin. A new volume of her collected poems will be released by Beacon Press this spring. Our conversation, which took place in the midst of raging pandemics, was recorded from our respective homes in Brooklyn and Philadelphia. You'll occasionally hear the sounds of the city as Sonia regales us with tales from her life and work. We open with a poem about her grandmother, followed by a meditation on her childhood in 1930s Alabama. Let's listen in. And this is a poem to my grandmother, um, uh, my father's mother, um, who lived in, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and, and when my mother died, uh, she came and picked me and my sister up and took, uh, brought me to her, her home there uh, in Birmingham. Um, my, my grandmother, uh, it was the house of, of women. Uh, I had two aunts who were not really my aunts, they were first cousins. <laughs> but in the South, you know, uh, my real aunt, Aunt Sarah, had started having children at 15. So they were much older. So um, uh, part of what they did in the South is that they were my aunts. So the Aunt Ruth and, and Aunt Louise, uh, they were in the house uh, with my sister Patricia and myself and my grandmother. My father came to my house in Philadelphia and this on this occasion, he brought a picture of my grandmother. I had not seen a picture of her in years. I don't think um, fathers are like mothers. They don't you know, keep lots of pictures and they're constantly sharing it with you. My father came to a place called New York City and he had to engage himself with, with trying to find work uh, when they turned him down as a school teacher, that which he had been in Birmingham, Alabama. But of course they assume that he wouldn't qualify. He was a Southern black teacher. Uh, and just as they looked at uh, me and my sister and said to my father, we should probably put them back because you come from the South and you don't know as much as we know. And that was the first time I ever saw my father get enraged at a white person um, because he knew his Southern place. And he said, test them. I should never forget that. And of course we were then put in more than our proper grade uh, at that point. Dear Mama, it is Christmas Eve and the year is passing away with callous feet. My father, your son and I decorate the night with words. Sit ceremoniously in human song. Watch our blue sapphire words eclipse the night. We have come to this simplicity from afar. He stirs, pulls from his pocket a faded picture of you, black woman, sitting in frigid peace all of your biography preserved in your face. And my eyes draw up short as he says, her name was Elizabeth, but we used to call her Lizzie. And I hold your picture in my hands, but I know your name by heart, it's mama. 
I hold you in my hands and let time pass over my face. Let my baby be. She ain't like the others. She rough. She'll stumble on gentleness later on. Ah, mama. Gentleness ain't never been no stranger to my genes, but I did like the roughness of running and swallowing the wind, diving in rivers I could barely swim, jumping from second story windows into a saving backyard bush. I did love you for loving me so hard until I slid inside your veins and sailed your blood to an uncrucified shore. And I remember Saturday afternoons at our house, the old sister deaconesses sitting in sacred pain, black cadavers burning with lost aromas. And I crawled behind the couch and listened to breaths I had never breathed, tasted their enormous martyrdom, lives spent on so many things, heard their laughter as Sister Smith's latest performance in church, her purse sailing towards Brother Thomas's head again. And I hugged the laughter round my knees, draped it round my shoulder like a Spanish shawl. And history began once again. I received it and let it circulate in my blood. I learned on those Saturday afternoons about women rooted in themselves, raising themselves in dark America, discharging their pain without ever stopping. I learned about women fighting men back when they hit them. Don't ever let no men hit you more than once, girl. I learned about women's waking up their men's in the night with pounds of hot grease and the compromises reached after the smell of hot grease had penetrated their sleepy brains. I learned about loose women walking their abandoned walk down front in church, crossing their legs instead of their hands to God. And I crept into my eyes alone with my daydreams of being woman, adult, powerful, loving, like them, allowing nobody to rule me if I didn't want to be. And when they left, when those old bodies had gathered up their sovereign smells after they had kissed and packed up beans, snacked and cakes cooked and laughed a bag, after they had called out their last goodbyes, I crawled out of my place, surveyed the room, then walked over to the couch where some had sat for hours and bent my head and smelled their evening smells. I screamed out loud, ooh, we ain't that stinky. And I laughed laughter from a thousand corridors. And you turned, mama, closed the door, chased me around the room until I crawled into a corner where your large body could not reach me. But your laughter pierced the little alcove where I sat laughing at the night and your humming sprinkled my small space, your humming about your Jesus and how one day he was gonna take you home. Because you died when I was six, mama, I never laughed like that again. Because you died without warning, mama, my sister and I moved from family to stepmother to friend of the family. I never felt your warmth again, but I knew corners and alcoves and closets where I was pushed when some mad woman went out of control, where I sat for days while some women raved in rhymes about unwanted children and work and not enough money or love. And I set out my childhood with stutters and poems gathered in my head like some winter storm and the poems erased the stutters and pain and the words loved me and I loved them in return. My first real poem was about you, 
mama and death. My first real poem recited an alphabet of spit, splattering a white bus driver's face after he tried to push cousin Lucille off a bus and she left Birmingham under the cover of darkness forever. My first real poem was about your child's white arms holding me up against death. My life flows from you, mama. My style comes from a long line of Louises who picked me up in the night to keep me from wetting the bed. A long line of Sarahs who fed me and my sister and 14 other children from watery soups and beans and a lot of imagination. A long line of Lizzies who made me understand love, sharing, holding a child up to the stars, holding your tribe in a grip of love. A long line of black people holding each other up against silence. I still hear your humming, mama. The color of your song calls me home. The color of your words saying, let her be. She got a right to be different. She gonna stumble on herself one of these days. Just let the child be and I be mama. That's a poem uh, to my grandmother. Um, mm -hmm. and. And on Saturdays, I would be outside playing, running, jumping, getting dirty, you know, braids out, whatever. My aunts complaining about me constantly said, she's not acting like a young lady should act. <laughs> you know, and mama would say, just let her be, just let her be. And I'd run and get behind the couch. And those sisters would start talking about everything. But there was always, as I say in the book, the snapping of the beans. I should never forget that. Between the solaces, there was a snapping of the beans. And all of a sudden, one of them said, you hear uh, Sister Lucille, uh, her husband beating her now. And there was just a snapping of the beans. And one of them said, well, my grandmother said, mama said, well, um, 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 uh, Gloria, you take uh, uh, her little girl because you have a little girl the same age. And, and um, um, Mary, uh, you take uh, the baby because you're still suckling. Your baby is still suckling and she will have something, you know, uh, to eat um, uh, for this day. Um, and then we have to go over there and show her how you put a pot of hot grits on the stove or a pot of hot water on the stove, wake your husband up, hold it over him and say, the next time you hit me, the next time you go to sleep, I will pour this on you. And of course he'll get mad and he'll jump up and leave the house. Um, and But he'll come back, you know, an hour later, but he will never hit you again. And I, you know, I tried to laugh and mama would shoot her eyes around the, uh, the couch that I had to stop. But I remembered that forever and ever. And I remember when someone uh, 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 hit me once, right? I looked up and said, you know, no, you'll never do that again because you got to go to sleep and I will pour some hot grits on you or some hot water, you know, and it never happened again. And so how you carry the memory of your ancestors now, your ancestors' words, you know, at that time, your grandmother's words, um, they didn't have psychologists and and um, and and uh, uh, psychiatrists, and they didn't even have a preacher they could go to with all of this that was happening, but they had each other. And each one of them told the next one how you survive um, a husband, a man beating on you. I thought it was just, so I, that, that was a poem dedicated to her, you know? And, you know, and also, you know, when she just said, let the, let the girl be, 
uh, because they were always trying to say, look at your sister, Patricia. She goes outside to play and she comes back in clean as she she was. You go outside to play, your braids are loose, you know, uh, your, your pinafore, you know, is torn, you know, your socks are hanging down, uh, your shoes are muddy. Where have you been? And mama would say, I remember that the other day, just let the girl be. Yeah. Just let the girl be. That was, and then I added, you know, she'd be all right. You know, um, she's going to stumble on gentleness one of these days. Right. Yeah. So mm. that was uh, the piece for mama. So beautiful. Mm -hmm. So beautiful and so perfect for this um, particular conversation, because, you know, what this project is really exploring, you know, is that my father's mother, and I can have this conversation differently with you because you know my father and you know my mother. Right, right. My father's mother was a genealogist and mm. she left us um, charts and books full of our family's history that she researched rigorously and recorded for now over 220 years. Um, I make work, I make my paintings in response to these uh, charts. But what I'm realizing is I'm in the process of, of sitting with them and making my own work from it, is that these arrows and these brackets and these things that signify the transfer of generations are really a survival story. Mm -hmm. Right? This is right. how we made it as black people in this country from January 22nd, 1800, when our oldest known ancestor was born till February 6th, 2021, as we sit here today, Sonia. <laughs> right. You know, um, mm -hmm. and, and so what I really am interested in exploring and excavating is the stories behind and underneath and in between all those arrows and those brackets. How did we do it? How did we do it? How did we make it? You know, mm -hmm. and I think this poem that you just so generously shared with us really speaks to literally how do we survive? What were our strategies? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we did have them, you know, the um and and it was interesting in thinking about it, you know, the main focal point was the church. Those mm -hmm. all those sisters were 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 sisters. Uh, mama was the head deaconess, so they always came to her house, right? And because she was older, uh, but it was that church, you know, my dear sister, it was that church that uh, when the pastor said he needed a roof, it was those sisters in that church that stood up, right? They weren't allowed to go all the way up, right? Right, but they stood right below, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they began to talk, but well, we need to raise, you know, uh, $5,000, you know, for the church to get a roof, whatever. And they did that and they would begin to sell, you name it. Um, you know, they would sell cakes and, and pies and, and, and they would hold all kinds of things in the church, raffles, whatever. And it was to make sure that $5,000, but they got that money, you know, at the end of the day, someone would get up and report that, you know, we have the money. They weren't having a check. They were having, you know, a big bowl, you know, that they had counted and here is the money. Then, and I doubt that if there were any checks in there, there might've been uh, some of the business people might've had checks, I don't know, but they had counted and they had the money that they needed. Um, this is the reality. And they're the ones also, when someone said my son was accepted in this black college, but we don't have money for the books, whatever. They would raise money for mm -hmm. that. You know, they would send these children off, you know, on a bus.
bus wherever they were going, right? Uh, to make sure they got to this school. Because one of the things that church and the sisters in those churches recognized that that college was important for them. It was part of our progress. That school was important. It was part of our progress. Yeah. And so, yes, they did that. But above all, what I recognized with those sisters was always that um, that Saturday. I mean, I was outside playing. I didn't have a watch at all, but I would look up and know, and I knew that they were, it was about time for them to come in and start cooking. And wherever I was, whatever fun game I was playing, you know, I would rush in and 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 put myself behind the couch just to listen, mm. listen to what mm. they were saying, what they were about. I mean, and you know, and and one of the things I say in there too is that like, you know, I was outside, I don't know if I said or not, and, and one day, this one day, um, someone said, you know, uh, one of the uh, the boys said, you know, I used to run with the boys because they, they played, you know, they climbed trees, and I love climbing trees, and, and the girls were just outside looking dainty, they didn't move, you wow. know, you know, <laughs> they were just looking around, maybe they bounced the ball, you know, or threw it back and forth, or they jumped a little rope, but they didn't sweat, dainty. the hair was always <laughs> properly braided, whatever, et cetera, you know, um, and we were jumping over a wall, and someone said, I'm the leader. And that there was just, you know, with boys, that was just, no, you're not. And so we decided, I said, I got it. So we went into the house and I and we, I said, the person who jumps out this window <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and lands on her feet, right? On his foot, her, his feet, her feet, you know, uh, would be the leader. And, you know, but all the time I was talking, there was this little tiny window uh, uh, by my bed on the, um, we had bunk beds, right? Uh-huh. And I got in the window, you know, and I stood there and I looked down, you know, I wasn't dumb. There was a tree always <laughs> right there by my window. I said, I figured, you jump and you hit the tree, there's a limb there, and you slide down the tree. And like, yes, <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> but what I did is that as I got ready to jump, they went running down, calling uh, uh, a mama. Right, you know, uh, letting her know that I was getting ready to jump out the window. And I kind of lost my rhythm and I hit the tree too hard Mm. and I really slid down and hit my knees, right? The first people coming out, my aunts. Tis, 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 tis. Oh, see, look at her. Look at her. She, look at her jumping out of a, a window. Look at her knees, whatever. And mama came out always. She was always cooking something, you know, for church or whatever, or for, for dinner, for home. And, and, and she said, she came down wiping her hands and she said, come here, Sonia. And, um, uh, and she said, looked at, she said, uh, uh, Ruth, go get some mercurochrome. I don't know if anyone knows mercurochrome. I don't know but what it that, is. Yeah, it's like it was like iodine, oh. and you put on, you know, wounds, mm-hmm. whatever. Did it burn and, and sting it, like and iodine? It, yes, it did. And and they wiped it away, and they put that on, right? And then they got a band aid for me. And Mama said, "You okay?" And I said, "I'm fine." And I said, "I got. I'm, I'm gonna go place you. Go on." And and my aunts were going tis tis tis, but I went outside and said to them. I'm the leader now, right? You know, and we went running. The, 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 the funny thing about this story is that 
the next day we came outside, there was no leader. Oh. I mean, we had forgotten that experience, whatever. We just went out and played. That's why I like playing with them because there was no, you know, not this constant arguing about stuff, you know. Every now and then, you know, maybe there was some decision made. And the next day we just ran. But um, that was a that, that was an amazing memory that I had, you know, mm-hmm. there. That that's what I did. But I was always, but mama always defended me. You know, my mama said, okay, we can just change, take it out of that. And I think at some point, and I could be wrong, or I could just be pushing things in, but I think at some point they found some little uh, dungarees for me. I don't know if they had, I think they called them dungarees instead of jeans, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they would let me put that on since I was climbing stuff, you know, all the time, right? And then in the, in the, in the uh, late afternoon, you had to go in this house and shop and take a bath or get washed up and then you put on something for the you know, for the afternoon when you sat on the porch, right? Whatever, I would have that. But mama protected me. Uh, and when those sisters left, I say, you know, I would go, oh, they were set for so long, you could smell the smell emanating mm-hmm. from the couch, whatever. So I went over and went, ooh, that's your stinks. And mama would start chasing me around the house <laughs> and I would get in a, a little corner and she'd go back to the sink. Uh, to the stove cooking, and she would hum one of her hymns, whatever. And it was such um, um, a safe, safe place, that little alcove I climbed into, and Mama singing. It was such a a point of safety there, you know, for me. And now in your poetry, often when you, when I hear you recite, there's a a, a rhythm, a humming that you tend to incorporate into your work. Is that a tribute back to, to your mom's humming back in the day? I think it is back to mom, but also mm-hmm. back to how I began to study, you know, African literature and 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 the songs emanating from 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 Africa, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and the chants that I heard um, from a number of the musicians who had traveled to the continent of Africa and came back, right? Um, you know, so I, I began to, you know, I never thought I could sing or whatever. But I began to, when especially when uh, the great jazz musicians from Coltrane and Max Roach and all uh, began to play that very modern music, that 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 heavy jazz that they were playing, and they began to incorporate when 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 um, Max and Abby, uh, you know, did Freedom Now mm-hmm. Suite, and she begins about. You know, this woman on you know the block, whatever. You know, I began to incorporate that sound, those sounds in my poetry at the same time. And years later at, at the Blue Note, I, I think it was the Blue Note, right? I asked one of them, I was doing something there, um, uh, a, a, a matinee uh, with some musicians, you know, I was reading some poetry and I went over and said, you know, I just asked, did you all understand what many of us were doing? Of course, we knew how to write in course, as they said, proper poetry. Mm-hmm. Many people criticize us as black arts people. They're not the proper poets, you know what I mean? Whatever. But I studied with Louis Bogan, one of the greatest uh, American poets, you know, at NYU. And so I knew how to write poetry, but I had also heard them yeah you know i heard tatum i heard coltrane i heard max i heard abby mm-hmm. oh and i seen abby at the same time right whatever i seen all these great great jazz musicians began to leave that western concept of music 
right? And go someplace else. And so we, you know, uh, Baraka and all of us, you know, you know, all of the people who began to use their voices, um, uh, the writers, right? Uh, we began to to incorporate that instead of the words, we put the sound in, right? And so when people uh, wanted to criticize us, they would say, you see, they don't even know the words, you know, uh, but thank <laughs> God we ignored them, you know, and went on to incorporate those African sounds, you know, into our and to our um, uh, our poetry uh, and incorporate the music, you know, that music of rebellion that mm -hmm. we were feeling at that particular point, you know, into our into our poetry at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things when I look back at that era, which, you know, I just um, I just spoke with Baba Haki earlier this week. Um, oh, how is he? Oh, he's good. Did you ask the same questions? Well, not all the same, um, uh -huh. but, but definitely there'll be some overlap because you all lived through right. and created such right. an extraordinary period for us. You know, so you probably talked a lot about his press then. Yeah, yeah, and, and just his gen in general, like the institutions that he's built, cool. because right. he's had such a commitment to that. Uh, in addition to to having such a prodigious literary output, and I wanted to talk about like that connection. You know, right. and his wife was a, a, a just a amazing woman, also too, yeah. running those schools. You know, at that particular time, right? Yeah, yeah. And and he, you know, being involved with that press, you know, publishing, making sure that you know the black books got out. You know, coming from Broadside Press and Dudley Randall. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and then his third world press. Uh, it is something you know to really understand. So you know, you would give your books to them, and you never ask for royalties. Yeah. I never took royalties from uh, a broadside press or from um, uh, uh, from his press, third world press. No, uh, third mm -hmm. world press. Mm -hmm. uh, you you put the money back into the press, so therefore they could publish other people. Uh, and I remember um, the brother who ran third, uh, not third world press. Um, uh, it, I forget the the magazine, the the journal. Um, um, it was the journal of the Negro World. It came out of Johnson Publishing, right? Am I remembering yeah, right. the name correctly? Uh, on the Black World. Black World. That's Black World. Black World. Right. Yes, ma'am. Our dear brother, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, published that. And um, you know, we were on the road once, and he was saying that we had sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of books, and it's true, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember mentioning to my children, they said, "My God." Mom, I said, yeah, we did, right? And and what did you do with the royalties? I said, well, I didn't get asked for the royalties. You know, we gave it back into the press. Not everybody, but mm -hmm. we gave it back into the press to make sure that Dudley could continue to publish, uh, and we would have a, a, a steady, a sturdy uh, black press. You know, for people who were publishing, for blacks who were publishing at that time. So that was always a joy. I mean, really, when I look at that time, I, I think about the way, like all of the different kinds of cross-fertilization and collaboration that was happening across sectors, you know? So the publishing mm -hmm. that you were just talking about and how people were using that to not only get the word out, but also build community up, you know? Then the collaboration between the poets and the musicians and the movement workers, and sometimes all of these were the same people, you know, <laughs> being the poets and the musicians and the movement workers, right? I'm just, I mean... When I look at it, for me, you know, it's so easy to look at it with 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 my eyes and romanticize it. Um, but I wonder, as you were living through it, did you know the impact that you were creating? Could you feel that you were in the midst of a renaissance? Oh, we knew we were in the midst because the country was responding, you yeah. know, outrageously. They were so angry at us because we had, um, you know, started something. I came out of 
of civil rights uh, New York Corps, right? Mm -hmm. And we thought we were the baddest people on the planet Earth because we would close down things. We would go and close down people make open opening up housing on Long Island and Queens where, you know, when they built these houses with government money, they did not want to let Latinos, you know, Puerto Ricans and blacks in. And we would go and pick it you know, mm -hmm. in the cold, cold, cold winter, right? Uh, and shut down everything until they did that. And I remember we were in New York call office at 125th Street and someone called the office and said they're trying to build, begin to build an extension to Harlem Hospital. And we rushed out there, up there and threw a picket line that was at 135th Street, mm -hmm. right? Uh, on 7th Avenue. And we threw this uh, mass, Lenox Avenue, we threw this massive picket line, you know, around uh, there um, to the, so, so the, the union couldn't come in. Uh, my dad uh, tells the story uh, that when some, when some French uh, uh, people came in to take me, I told them, you know, take my dad also too, because I'm sure, you know, he can tell you more <laughs> stories about me. Uh, uh, and he did, uh, but he, he tells a story about one morning, here all the shotting. He was on the 17th floor there at Lennox Terrace, right? Mm -hmm. And he went out on his terrace and he had his binoculars. And he looked down and there he saw this line. We had blocked the streets at 135th Street. Nothing was, no cars were moving. Cars were backed up and turning around, going back to Fifth Avenue. And he, you know, he got his binoculars and he saw his daughter <laughs> down there. <laughs> and, took the binoculars and he took it and, and ran the binoculars up, all the way up. Uh, across, you know, Lenox Avenue and coming towards us were the policemen on horseback. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, on horseback, aiming for us, my dear sister. And um, he dropped his binoculars, you know. He said his first instinct was to call my name, right? Oh. But he knew that it would not reach me from the 17th floor. So he, he said, he, he told the uh, the. Um, uh, the people, the interviewers from Paris, that he dropped his binoculars, he got his keys, didn't get a jacket or anything at all, uh, uh, went to the elevator, and uh, he was on the 17th floor, it wasn't coming, he opened the doors and he ran down 17 flights of steps, right? And he got outside and he ran across, you know, uh, uh, the avenue there, 135th Street, to get to us, and we had gone. Because as luck would have it, as someone said, but I always maintain, there's no such thing as luck, there's only hard work. And maybe every now and then a little, a little sprinkle of luck, right? Um, the the first either black lieutenant or black captain was being driven to work, and he saw we, we had blocked, you know, traffic. And he jumps out his car and he comes over to us and said, "What do you people want?" And we said, "We want to open up the uh, the electrical union and the plumbers union to black and Puerto Rican men." Um, and 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 then so we're saying if you don't do that you're not going to do any work on harlem hospital at all and so he said well go, you go down tiny went inside and got some of the union people uh you know who were like in, in, in a state of stasis and you all go downtown and settle this take it away from this hospital and we you know they headed down in their cars and we got jumped on a train we went back to to a uh, 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 core office at 125th street mm -hmm. you know got up you know purses and uh, you know paraphernalia and got on the train and headed downtown and 
we began the negotiations, you know, uh, three people went in and the others sat outside and three more people went in. And finally, I was in there at that time. Mm-hmm. And they said that simply, um, uh, okay, okay, this is like two o'clock in the morning, believe it or not. Okay, 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 give us some names. And we left all our names in the office, but my brother, was an amazing electrician. He fixed all the electrical work for the family, right? So I gave his name, right? And I and I and they, they, you know I got their dress and everything, and we left. I got home at about three thirty in the morning. Had wow. to get up, you know, to go to work and to and to t- take my classes um, uh, down at NYU. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, uh, the telephone rang. I knew it was my father. Right, who's calling me? That was my father. So I, I lit a cigarette. My children were so shocked when they heard this, right? <laughs> I smoked, right? You know, I put on the hot, the cold, cold coffee, got it hot, you know, went to the bathroom. Because in those days, the phone would ring forever and ever until you picked it up. Yeah. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. Until finally, so it, it would ring 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 times, right? You know, and I finally picked up the phone. I said, Yes, Dad. I knew it was my father. He said, Sonia, 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 why don't you just stop this? You know, you were already in the demonstration when the when the horses came towards you when we were we were uh, uh, protesting uh, one of the southern governors. You know, um, you know who had come up to speak at one of the TV stations, right? Um, and you almost got you got knocked down at that point. He said, uh, why don't you uh, just stop this? You know, why don't you move out to Long Island someplace? Right. You know, and uh, I won't tell you, I was awfully rude to my dad. But I said at the end, I said, uh, tell Wilson, your son, my brother, tell Wilson that this is the dress he should show up, get a pen and pencil, dad. You know, and I gave it to him. I said, uh, we put I put his name down for the union, electrical union. My dad said the artist thing. He said, a job, a job for Wilson. I said, what do you think we're fighting for? A job for Wilson. And my brother was one of the first uh, 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 union, black union uh, workers for the electrical union. You know, yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Mm. It's amazing. You know, because it just it brings it home in such a concrete way, you know, in terms of not just what you were fighting for and how you saw it show up in your own family, but then also just the love that animates that run down 17 floors to try to get to his baby, you know, and the same way he was looking through the binoculars. Now we're looking through the lenses of our computer cameras and our Zooms and our Facebook lives to the protests, you know, if we're not out there ourselves, you know, but we're bearing witness in a very different kind of, well, in a very similar kind of way, actually, you know, to, to the ways that movement is 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 bubbling all around the country and you know, on all these different cities and all these different moments, um, as you as you are watching this, as you are living through this moment, are there any things that you wish for us to know from all of the decades that you've spent doing movement work? Is there anything that you think that we should be carrying with us as we um, collectively engage in this work? Right. Well, I, I think that it's important that many of the young people involved should really study 
what we were doing before so they don't make the same mistakes that we made mm -hmm. because you know we were told that by finally when we looked up and realized that you know we had not we were not like topsy we just didn't grow on america and jump out there and become the people that we were that there was a history and history of people behind us who had done similar work mm -hmm. and who was so important and who had things to say to us and they weren't trying to tell us what to do they were trying to share you know the mistakes you know uh, the progress that they made also at the same time which is really important you know for that to to happen uh for people to listen to each other you know to to understand that this is a continuum you know that you know they went so far then it was up to us we are going so far and we're still moving and writing today and then they have to go a little bit further also for this thing to really get turned around here in america i am so proud you know you know of, of black lives matter and all the people who are working with them you know uh, i'm so proud that you know they have continued in the tradition that we continued in uh you know in core you know and in the southern movement there were always black white and latinos in there you know fighting for what we fought for also too there was a time, however, in New York City, which probably people won't uh, remember, a lot of the young people won't remember, where uh, we had gotten to the point where we told uh, in New York Corps, we had meetings uh, there at the Apollo Theater uh, for weeks, um, trying to, at some point, move New York Corps to the point where we were getting more black members in, right? And the leadership, we thought, should have been also just uh the black folks needing it at that particular point and that caused for a lot of trauma uh you know in the movement but that was important because you know we understood what we were doing at that particular point and that was very important for us to to push that and to do that um so yeah um you know uh, you know what uh and one of the things i said uh to someone one of the young people i said but make sure you can always gather people to come out thousands of people to come out and participate, but make sure you know how to contact people, uh, uh, not just via your iPhone, but if you don't have an iPhone. We had to gather thousands of people without an iPhone. You should ask the questions of people, how did you do it? Whatever, mm -hmm. you know, what methods did you use for that to happen, right? It really speaks to this idea of, 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 of genealogies right, like cultural genealogies, going back to the folks who came before you so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And and what it begs for me is, is the question of who you were looking back to, who, who were some of your and, biggest influences? And I always end up leaving out some names, you mm -hmm. know, right? So uh, it was like last night after I talked to you, I just said, don't leave out all these, some of these names, because sometimes people would see me, well, Sonia, what happened? You forgot me, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, you know, it's like, when you know when you're on television or something you know what i mean yeah. you know you, you know you just like you're you know doing it one two three you forget but i just did write down you know some of the names of people who were influential you know uh to us you know um and 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 bringing information to us all you know and that was always uh you know snick and new york core you mm -hmm. know and core you know all the work that they did 
uh, and all the people who were involved in, in SNCC and CORE. And the writers were people like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Margaret Walker and June Jordan and Audre Lorde. There were some bad sisters, whatever. They were writing some words that people had not heard before. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, they were bringing it home to people. Uh, there was Hakeem Adabuti and, and Amiri Baraka, you know, Gwen Brooks, and some of the, 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 the younger people today, Nikki Finney, if you've never, you know, Nikki uh, oh, Finney is she's amazing. an amazing, amazing writer, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, Walter Mosley, you know, uh, when he does all of those 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 mysteries that he does but then he also talks about you know very in, in important political things you know and if you read his mysteries also do you see the politics in it the politics in the men you know who are trying to do things um margaret atwood you know a woman i read on on the stages you know with um also and people like Tommy Orange knew people, but Dudley Randall, Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, uh, and then Miss Hudson, uh, you know, she was the, when I, when I went looking for a job, I got out of college and, you know, I, I, I had a teaching job. We got out mid, mid year in January. Mm -hmm. So I, I had a job for September. My father said, well, you need to look for a job in the meantime, Sonia. So I answered all the ads in the papers and I went downtown and people look at me, you know, and say, I'm sorry, the job is taken. I knew it was what that was about, you know, and I came home and told my father, you know, he said, well, you're not going to get a job out of, you know, reading the ads in the New York Times, but I still got the Sunday Times. And there was one said they were looking for a writer. You know, for their for their uh, uh, for their company, and so I sent a sample of my writing. I sent a, a short CV, right? I sent my uh, address, and telephone number, and I got a telegram the following Saturday that said, "Report to work on Monday at 9 a.m." That I was hired as a writer for this firm. So I took that telegram around, and I stuck it in my father's face and said, "See." <laughs> See, can't get a job as a writer. And my father kind of looked at me and said, mm-hmm, well, you know, you're probably you're going to end up a teacher just like just like me. I said, no, I'm going to do something that I want to do. I want to write, mm -hmm. you know. I always wanted to write. It was a quiet thing with me, you know, whatever. So I showed up that Monday morning in a, in a, in a hip blue suit, and I had a hat on and gloves and a purse and blue heels, you know, yes, and showed up at 8.30, you know, and I was standing outside the door and I heard this woman coming down the hallway and she said, yes, can I help you? And I took out the telegram and handed it to her. She looked at the telegram. She looked at me. She looked at the telegram and she looked at me again and she looked a third time and looked at me and she looked, she handed it back and she unlocked the door and said, come in and have a seat. I sat down, you know, and I was just, I had my purse, you know, and a telegram in my hand and like, whoa, I'm looking around the office. She got up, left, she went through a door, you know, she came back, she took this cover off the typewriter, <clears throat> one of the old fashioned, and she began to pull out some work and she began to type. And the only thing you heard was the typing in there and my breathing. Then all of a sudden the door opened. This man comes out and says, yes, can I help you? I stood up. I walked over to him. We met each other and I handed him the telegram and he looked at the telegram 
and he looked at me. He looked at the telegram again, and he looked at me. He did it a third time, mm. and he just stopped in his tracks, handed it back, and said, I'm sorry the job is taken. So I said, oh, coming from New York, New York humor. Nope, well, I said, I got it. I got it. I came at 8.30. Uh, you said, come at 9 o'clock. I'm going to go outside the door and wait in the hallway until it gets to be 9 o'clock. Then I will come back in here, <laughs> and it should be all right. <clears throat> and I thought this man was going to laugh for a minute. He kept this stoic, I mean, dry face, mm -hmm. right? And he said, I said, the job is taken. And I said, I got it. I got it. This is discrimination. And the typist has stopped typing. But then she started typing again, fastly, fast. And he left. He went out, closed the door, slammed the door, actually. Mm. And I got gathered up my stuff, you know, went out with tears in my eyes, my dear sister. Mm. Went out, got on the train. If you know New York City, if you get on that express train going uptown, you've got to get off of 96th Street to get the one for the west side. Either, because yes. otherwise you end up on the east side. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there and the door is closing at 96th Street, right? I went, oh my God. And all of a sudden I felt the shaking, the shaking you know, of the train heading for the east side. And we came out of the 110th, mm -hmm. 116th, 125th Street, and then 135th. I got off at 135th because I was going to the, the urban need further over, right? And I crossed Lenox Avenue and I got about, according to the block, there was a sign that said Schomburg. And there was a man I saw smoking a fast cigarette. And I said, sir, can you tell me, please, you know, what is the Schomburg? He says, go inside, sign, sign, just sign the book and go up the steps and you'll see. And so I did all that and I went into this huge room and there was this long, long table and there were books stacked high and there were nothing but black men scholars sitting at that table working mm. and there was a, a right behind that was a glass door and I went and knocked on the door and Miss Jean Hudson who was the curator came and opened the door and I introduced myself and she says I am Miss Jean Hudson uh, glad to meet you Sonia <laughs> and um and I said what kind of library is the Schomburg, the man outside wouldn't tell me. She said, oh my dear, she said, this library has books only by, only by and about Negroes. And I said with my fresh mouth, you know, and she never let me forget it. Every time I brought my students to the Schomburg, she'd tell the same story. <laughs> I, said, I said, there must not be many books in here, huh? Well, now. All right. And she, said, <laughs> she made the men make room for me, right? She's made room. And she pushed a chair there, right, mm -hmm. for me. She said, just wait a minute, you know. Mm -hmm. And I sat there, and 10 minutes passed, 15 minutes passed. I remember looking at my watch. I thought she had forgotten me. At 20 minutes, she came out with three books, Up From Slavery, mm. Soul of Black Folk, mm -hmm. and on top, their eyes were watching God. Come on. And that's one that I began to open and read. And when my eyes, I mean, it was Black English. I always tell the young professors, it is not dialect. It is Black English, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And I said, uh, when my eyes and ears and mouth and tongue became accustomed to the Black English, I got 
really lost in it. I had read about a quarter of the book and I eased up out of the chair. I went and knocked on the door. Miss Hudson opened the door. She told the story all the time to my students. Uh, I had tears in my eyes. I was crying. I said, how could I say I was educated and I never came across these people? She said, oh my dear, go, go sit down, go sit down now. I'm gonna bring you lots and lots of books. Um, and I eased back in and I started reading more and I got to about a third of the book and my eyes and tongue body became accustomed to the black English and I put my head down. I remember one of them, one of them, African scholars looked up and just shook his head, you know, went back and I eased out again and I knocked on the door again. I said, I was really crying. I said, she said, oh my dear. And she hugged me. I'll never forget that hug. She said, and she brought me back. She said, I sit down and you read, don't get up, just read and keep reading. I'm going to give you lots and lots and lots of books. And this African scholar next to me said, Miss Hudson, tell this young woman, either she, either she sits still or she has to leave. And I sat still for the rest of the summer. I told my father every day, I'm going out looking for a job. And I came to the Schomburg. That was my job. Mm. And when I finally was ending some of the things at the end of the summer because I was getting ready ostensibly for this job, uh, you know, in September. She gave me the names of Mr. Richard Moore and Mr. Um, oh heavens, um, uh, the, the brother at the uh, at the bookstore, 125th Street. Uh, uh, Richard Moore had another bookstore. Uh, Mr. Michaud. Mm -hmm. I went to Mr. Michaud first, right? And he had two bags. They didn't have any shopping bags given out, but two like grocery store bags. And they were all these black literature books that they gave to me that Miss Hudson had said to them, uh, I would be coming down and they had to give me books so I could continue my reading. Isn't that wow, amazing? That's extraordinary. And I had to cab home for that, right? Yeah. Then the next day came down Mr. Moore, who was from the Caribbean, and his bookstore, I always say, was so narrow, you had to go in sideways, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's black humor, right? <laughs> but he was used to be slide on the slider, because the books were stacked so high, yeah. and when I came in, he turned around, he said, what do you want? <laughs> That's how he greeted you. Miss Hudson sent me, oh, you're the one. And he had two bags of books also, wow. Caribbean literature also for me, right? And he invited me to come to his bookstore, you know, once a week where the students who had come from the Caribbean, when he had leading people from the Caribbean giving a talk you know, to the students who were at City College, the Caribbean students who were at City College. And I, I, that was so important to me, my dear sister, those books that I began to read. So when we started Black Studies coming full circle, someone said, you know, Sonia Sanchez, she's always talking about Frederick Douglass. She's always talking about Du Bois, you know, and she's always talking about Marcus Garvey. I mean, you get her, you're trying to dance with her, and she began to say, have you read this book? And you throw it out and just leave it on the floor. That's true. <laughs> that's a true story, right? Uh, and that's really what happened, that I said, yes, you know, I read these books, um, and Miss Hudson always fed me more books. And when we got ready to start Black Studies, I taught Black Lit because I had read all these books and would go into a classroom at San Francisco State when we began Black Studies and write all these names of the writers and people 
on the board, you know, whatever. And the students knew only two names, Malcolm and MLK. Mm. And at the end of the semester, you would know great men and women, right? Yeah. You know, what's amazing about that story is that in so many ways, um, direct and indirect, you've been responsible for those aha moments in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I went to Spelman um, and, you know, really began to do as an English major, a deep dive into um, what you all were creating, all of these, <laughs> you know, folks that right. I sit with now from from the National Black Arts Movement in particular really spoke to me. I remember that I did my graduate work in Africana Cultural Studies, which could not and would not have happened if it hadn't been for, for you and uh, your colleagues starting the, that Black Studies program at San Francisco State. So thank you. <laughs> you gave me back and to I'm myself in so many ways. African, there were African students who had come in there mm-hmm. San Francisco State. But, you know, it was Miss Hudson and that whole New York contingency, Queen Mother Moore, mm-hmm. you know, you know, this woman, you know, who taught Malcolm, but who had been in the in the Communist Party before, and they they had taught her how to speak. She said, "You know, I've never given a speech mm-hmm. a speech before, and but they would make you stand up, and you might sound terrible the first time, but they make you stand up the next week, and you sound you sounded less terrible, and they make you stand up the third week, and through practice, you learn how to be that great speaker that she was, right, and with that great information, you know, there." Uh, you know, and all those people, you know, you know, you know, from the Barakas, the Queen Mother Moore, you know, um, to the Dudley Randalls, you know, to George Kent, you know, who was a great critic uh, at that particular time. Mm-hmm. Addison Gale was a great critic at that particular time. All those people contributed to us, my dear sister, you know, as we moved, uh, you know, in this circle of learning, you know, uh, you know, uh, and of course, I'm, I, I, don't, I won't do the whole litany of names, but when I do readings, I do that litany of names, mm-hmm. you know, on purpose, right? Uh, of all those men and women, you know, who contributed so greatly, you know, to our, you know, to, the, to, to our dear sister who started as slick, you know, uh, and began to teach those brothers oh, and sisters you. also to, uh, you know, uh, um, to, I did, I just did a program mm-hmm. um uh, talking about Vincent Harding, Vincent Harding, you know, who was a a, a great scholar also, a great historian, you know, and a man who, you know, who wrote that speech, you know, for our dear brother uh, uh, Martin that he gave at at the church, you know, uh, in New York City, uh, which was a very important speech, you know, talking about our, our involvement in the Vietnam War. Uh, this man uh, began to talk about that, uh, uh, Brother Martin, you know, mm-hmm. and how it was ruining this country, you know, as a concept, as a consequence of that. All of that, you know, yeah. you know. So, you know, Martin and Malcolm, you know, these people that we spoke about, the great black jazz musicians who were taking, leaving that Western concepts, the Western confines of music, and going. Ah! Wow! <laughs> we sit, you know, we sit down at the Blue Note. We sit down at the village, the, the village vanguard, you know, whatever, and just sit there all night. And it release the words were released, mm-hmm. the sounds were released that made our poetry become authentically black. 
if you understand what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. And I am just so happy, you know, that I was have been a part of that movement. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch the new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced in partnership with Park Avenue Armory. The Lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images, and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com. And stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday.